This is episode 229 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cellular Reprogramming and Pluripotency with Dr. Jacob Hanna. Hey everybody, we are doctors Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Jacob Hanna from the Weizmann Institute of, of Science on the podcast to talk about his research investigating the process of cellular reprogramming and how pluripotency is maintained throughout development. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, are you attending an upcoming cell or gene therapy conference? Enter to win up to $500 US from Stem Cell Technologies towards your registration fee. Contest closes on November 30th, 2022, and is open to residents of select countries only. Full eligibility rules can be found on the registration form, and you can visit www.stemcell.com slash 2022 conference award to learn more. Yeah, we are so excited to have Dr. Hannah on the show here today in part because of the amazing discoveries and papers that have been coming out of his laboratory in basic developmental biology over the last year or so. You know, these very, very high profile papers about um, synthetic embryo development using this ex vivo roller culture. But we'll get to Dr. Hannah in a little bit. We're going to talk about the roundup here first. I'm going to start things off with another early development stories sort of in the wheelhouse of stuff that you do and also stuff that Dr. Hannah does as well. This is a science article entitled Mammalian Oocytes Store MRNAs in a Mitochondria-Associated Membraneless Compartment. This is a, in my mind, this is a huge deal because this is answering a an age-old question about mammalian development because as we know, full-grown oocytes are transcriptionally silent, right? After they're matured and they have to stably maintain their messenger RNAs, mRNAs that they need for meiotic maturation and early embryonic development after fertilization, right? So once the oocytes are, are matured, they have to stay silent until they're fertilized. But where and how mammalian oocytes actually store their maternal mRNAs, it's unclear. And I'm shocked that it's taken this long to figure this out. And here they actually showed that mammalian oocytes, and this is the lab of Dr. Melina Shu, first author is Xia Cheng. Um, and this is actually, interestingly enough, coming from the Department of Meiosis in the Max Planck Institute in Germany. I didn't realize that there was a Department of Meiosis, but if there's a paper that comes out of the Department of Meiosis, it's got to be this one, right? So here they are showing that mammalian oocytes accumulate mRNAs in a what's called mitochondria-associated ribonuclear protein domain, or abbreviated MARDO. Um, this MARDO assembles around the mitochondria in the oocytes and is promoted by the RNA binding proteins R1, and it's directed by an increase in mitochondrial membrane potential during oocyte growth. These MARDO foci, what they say, coalesced into these hydrogel-like matrices that clustered around mitochondria. And this is apparently where these, you know, secret mRNAs, maternal mRNAs are actually being stored in this Mardo complex, complex that's localizing around mitochondria. Pretty wild. 
And so, as you might expect, the maternal mRNAs that are stored in this complex are translationally repressed until fertilization happens. Um, and also, loss of the ZAR1 protein that I mentioned disrupted the MARDO, dispersed the mitochondria, and actually caused, as you might expect, a premature loss in this MARDO localized mRNA. So this is, I think, really answering a fundamental question in mammalian development of biology because they're showing that these mitochondrial-associated membraneless compartments, these MARDOs, are controlling maternal mRNA storage, translation, and decay to actually ensure fertility in in mammals. This is a this is a huge deal, and again, I'm shocked that it took this long to figure this out. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I could lament how reproductive biology gets no run so i'll just i'll just put that in there i've already done it there you go there's my <laughs> lament but um that's not all of it i mean the 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 concept was there i guess these membranous membraneless compartments have been observed in c elegans and drosophila so like we knew about them uh why we haven't looked in mammalian oocytes or maybe people have looked and they haven't been able to figure it out I, like you, am, am very surprised by that. Um, and it's really important. I mean, notwithstanding the lack of funding for reproductive biology, uh, in terms of fundamental insight at like, you know, the beginning of life, this is a really critical uh, observation, I think. And their mechanistic um, approach there, you know, untangling it, I think really gives you a, a a new insight and I think it fits in with this whole idea of how coordinated uh, fertilization, you know, to avoid polyspermy. There's so many things that the egg has to coordinate with these kind of checkpoints. And um, this is is a really important idea that I don't think we've had our finger on how you get that timely degradation of the maternal mRNAs, which is critical for early development. And, and this really fills that in. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's for lack of looking, but now that we've found this mechanism, I think it's really going to be important to to look into how it's coordinated in human, other mammal, mammalian reproduction. Great story. And you know me, I always love to see a repro story out there in a high profile journal. So kudos to the authors here. Nice work. So let me put you on the spot since this is kind of your realm of work and how would this be relevant and like how could this be expanded upon what's the relevance of this for say ivf right like you know as we've discussed and as you know you know the the integrity and the quality of the oocyte is so critically important in ivf and how is this gonna play a role in that well i mean you put me on the spot here room but i i don't know that we're gonna directly translate this into an intervention but I think it maybe gives us some ideas or leads on on poor egg quality with advanced maternal age. I think it just gives us a, other targets to examine in the context of infertility to see if if oocyte quality is really uh, um, related at all to these mardos and maternal RNAs, um, et cetera. So I, I think that while the translation to reproductive assisted reproduction is not really around the corner. Um, I think that there's maybe some long-term uh, potential there, not to mention, you know, veterinary IVF, which is critical for agriculture and whatnot. So I think there's fertile ground here for a lot of investigators to take this baton and run with it. Anyway, on to the next thing, you know, getting more conventional. We love eggs, but um, 
we've all got bones, right? You know, only 50% of us have the eggs, but we've all got the bones. And bone repair is a, a critical, uh, I don't say unmet need, you know, a lot of orthopedists out there, but the mechanism of bone repair is not really well understood. And especially with advancing age and degenerative conditions, um, the, the cellular mechanisms by which bones repair, I think is, is critically important. Uh, so here, what we're talking about is skeletal stem cells. Uh, and they contribute to bone repair. They're present in, on the outside surface of bones, but they're also in, in the bone marrow, right? And um, the contribution of these skeletal stem cell populations to bone repair have been debated and are kind of controversial, mostly because there's there's not really, there's not a lot of markers, but also the markers aren't great. There's a lot of overlap uh, and that makes fate mapping uh, tough. And, and some of the fate mapping that's been done, like in most of uh, our field is done in early postnatal juvenile mice. We're looking kind of developmental time points. And the cells that account for that are different from the cells that account for bone repair in adulthood. And with all that being the case, there's really few studies that have performed these quantitative kind of side-by-side -side analyses of the different cells and their contribution to bone repair. So just a little background of what is known. Uh, in the In the adult bone marrow, there's these leptin re uh, receptor expressing SSCs, uh, skeletal stem cells that are a major source of osteoblasts for bone maintenance and fracture repair. Um, but most of the markers that have been used to identify and fate map these leptin receptor positive SSCs in the bone marrow uh, have not been assessed on that outer surface of the bone, which also accounts for bone repair. Then there's also this GLEE-1 Cree-ERT2 mice. So GLEE-1 expressing cells, uh, those are also SSCs. GLEE-1 is expressed in a ton of cells. Hedgehog target there. Hedgehog is ubiquitous. But um, these GLEE-1 Cree-ERT2 mice really nicely label SSCs um, that are in the periosteum of adult bones. Uh, but while the periosteal SSCs and bone marrow SSCs have both been re reported to contribute osteoblasts to fracture repair. It's difficult to distinguish the contributions of periosteal cells versus bone marrow cells um, in fate mapping. Again, because there's all these overlapping um, kind of marker expression. Now, another bit of, bit of background, just in the terms of, of how bone, bone injuries can repair, um, at the SSCs can differentiate directly to bone but there's also this alternative path whereby they f form this cartil cartilaginous intermediate that then matures to bone, ossifies to bone. And there's been an observation out there that different bone injuries have different modes of repair, right? So that raises the question, maybe these different modes of repair are mediated by different kinds of SSCs. So that was the, the rationale moving into the study. Uh, from Sean Morrison's group at UT Southwestern. And what they did is they used these leptin receptor Cree mice, also these adiponectin uh, Cree mice, uh, as well as Glee 1 Cree ERT2 mice, and found that the SSCs in the adult bone marrow can be identified based on this leptin Cree expression, also adiponectin Cree expression, while the SSCs in the periosteum or the outside outer surface of the bone are identified mostly by these GLEE-1, CREE-RT2. Um, and under steady state conditions, the new bone uh, mostly comes from those bone marrow SSCs, the leptin receptor ones. Um, and after bone injuries, both 
of those SSC populations, they proliferate, but they contribute to different types of bone repair. And this, I think, is really the critical finding here. So drill injuries, where you drill a hole, um, uh, those were repaired primarily by the leptin receptor, the bone marrow-derived ones. And fracture uh, was repaired primarily by these GLEE-1 periosteal SSCs. So that, to me, is the big takeaway. And, and they do a lot of mechanism and look at also hematopoietic niche factors. You know, it's Sean Morrison. He's got to look at hematopoiesis. There's a lot more in this paper. But for me, that's the, you know, big takeaway. Different bone injuries repaired by different SSCs. Uh, I think it's a, a really important idea for the bone, but also just conceptually something that maybe we ought to consider when we think of uh, any kind of monotypic stem progenitor cell mediating a function for a whole organ system. Uh, in all likelihood, there are these kind of spectrum of stem progenitor cells in multiple organ systems that are mediating different types of you know, development and or uh, regeneration. So I think that's a, a nice idea for me. You know, the details on the bone is one thing, but the idea that there's a whole spectrum of progenitors that account for different properties and different tissues, I think is a, a really nice conceptual advance. I can feel it in my bones. No, this is a very cool concept. Um, the idea that different bone injuries can have different mechanisms of regeneration and one thing, I mean, they they allude to this directly, I think, in the paper. Um, there, Of course, there are some limitations. And one is that the age of the mice that they used here, I think, was critically important. They used younger mice. So there's a likelihood, and we know that regeneration decreases in its propensity and its power over the course of aging. And you know, combined with the fact this is a mouse study, you know, certainly there's a lot to... Uh, further explore in the human context as well and in the the age-related context. The other thing is different bones in the body, whether it's a femur, whether it's other types of specialized bones, they may have different regenerative properties, right? Different propensity to regenerate. I think the femur is the go-to model of bone regeneration because it's accessible. It's huge. It's the biggest bone in the body, right? Um, but Certainly, I can see how other bones in the body may have other modes of regeneration as well. Yeah, we definitely, I think, have to expand this to other bones in the body, but also to the human. I think while this is maybe a fundamental property, I would, I would guess, in mammals, um, I think it'd be important to observe it in human. And, you know, from a disease standpoint, I think this is really exciting, too, because not just in terms of intervention, you know, if you wanted to treat with different types of SSCs in the context of bone injury, but also understanding how, you know, you get this deficiencies in fracture healing amongst older patients, um, probably because, you know, it's their bone marrow derived or their periosteal SSCs that are dysfunctioning to varying degrees. Uh, and also just in the context of disease, right? Bone marrow transplant, you wonder if, you know, bone marrow transplant may differentially affect uh, the ability to heal from different kinds of bone injury. You know, you're not transplanting the periosteum, you're transplanting the bone marrow. Whether or not that uh, results in a wholesale replacement uh, or alteration of, of those uh, adiponectin um, SSCs, uh, leptin receptor SSCs in the bone marrow remains to be seen. But I think just a lot there, a lot to unpack and a lot to consider moving forward in the bone period. So a really exciting study from my standpoint.
Totally. And it also makes me reflect that we haven't had too many bone regeneration biologists here on the Stem Cell Podcast. We had Joy Wu a long time ago, but I've, this is such a hot area of study and it's just such a huge unmet medical need. I feel like we need to chat with more folks about this. So, you know, we can make that happen, hopefully. Moving on to something that's not bone related, something that's brain related. And it's talking about, we're talking about glioblastoma. This is one of the most aggressive forms of cancer. And sadly, one of the most lethal forms of cancer out there. This is a certainly a brain cancer, right? Um, the prognosis is very poor for this particular type of cancer. And the, this is a cell stem cell paper, a disease model, a glioblastoma stem cell specific histamine secretion drives pro-angiogenic tumor microenvironment remodeling. This is coming from the lab of Shen Pan in uh, Fudan, China, Fudan University in China. I really like this story because for one, it's talking about glioblastoma and I think anything that we can do to relieve or mitigate glioblastoma in some way or figure out some of these basic mechanisms to alleviate it, it's it's a good thing. You know, there's so much that we have to figure out with when it comes to this particular disease. Um, two, it actually has a target that they come out with on the other side of this paper. So we can dive into it. The communication between glioblastoma stem cells, what they call GSCs, and the microenvironment is a really important feature for the aggressive biology of this particular disease, glioblastoma multiform GBM. And we know all about glio. It's it's really awful prognosis. But I guess this is something that's universal to cancer as well. I mean, the microenvironment and the niche is so, so critically important to facilitating the development of whatever tumor, right? You have to have aggressive angiogenesis leading into the, the tumor formation and allowing the tumor to grow in that way. But when it comes to glio specifically, the mechanisms by, with, by which these glioblastoma stem cells or GSCs actually drive interactions with the microenvironment is not perfectly understood. And this is, you could say, generalizable to other cancers as well. So what they did here is they interrogated metabolites that are preferentially secreted from these glioblastoma stem cells and found that these GSCs actually produce and secrete histamine, specifically histamine, to shape this pro-angiogenic tumor microenvironment. So histamine in itself is driving the angiogenesis for, for glio in a lot of situations. The histamine producing ability is attributed to, and this is getting a bit into the weeds here, uh, H3K4 trimethylation modification, uh, uh, histidine decarboxylase or HDC transcription through MYC, which is a very famous cancer oncogene, right? So this histidine decarboxylase HDC is really highly expressed in glioblastoma. And so there's a lot of secretion of histidine, uh, histamine, sorry, in this particular disease and in glio. And as you might expect, the more histamine and the higher expression of HDC, uh, histidine decarboxylase, it leads to a poor survival of these patients. So that's really cool to me. I didn't realize that you could use this as a biomarker for, for disease severity and glioblastoma. Um, and these GSC or glioblastoma stem cell secreted histamine, actually what it does mechanistically is it activates endothelial cells and triggers angiogenesis and subsequently triggers a histamine H1 receptor axis um, leading to further endothelial growth, blood vessel development. And as you might expect, if you're getting a lot of angiogenesis in these glio and tumor populations, you're going to have a, a worse prognosis. Okay, It's going to lead to an advancement of the disease and ultimately death, which is the sad reality for a lot of glio patients. But 
because they identified histamine as a target and as a biomarker here, they're able to reverse some of these phenotypes. But as you might expect, pharmacologically blocking the histamine axis using, as you again might expect, antihistamines, which impedes the growth of glioblastoma xenografts in mice. So it's establishing that the glioblastoma specific metabolite secretion in the form of histamine can remodel the tumor microenvironment. And like I mentioned at the very beginning, I love the story because it comes out with a target, something druggable, a target for glio. Um, I think targeting histamine is a little tricky because antihistamines have so many other effects that we're aware of. Um, you know, having a selective targeting of histamine in the, in the brain is going to be a very tricky therapeutic option. But anything that can come out with a a druggable target for glio treatment, in in my opinion, is a is a slam dunk, really. So we're saying a, a spinal tap of Benadryl, huh? I mean, that that sounds <laughs> almost too easy. But um, I'm clearly it's more complex than that blood brain barrier as you're as you're speaking of there. But um, yeah, I mean, who knew there's a low hanging target there that we, we could have been going after. For me, the, the the concept here is is interesting. And I, I, I guess my curiosity is, is this, you know, anytime you talk about tumor, it's hard to separate this, I have like this, this evolutionary mindset like the tumor against the human but like there's not the tumor just grew up right there's no eons of evolution tuning it so i ask why does the glio uh evolve uh this response and the only thing i could imagine is that it's fundamental to glia you know glia maybe and you know you know the nervous tract often follows the endothelial tracts when you look at them so I wonder if just glia laying down a proangiogenic milieu um, during normal development. But then you say that the, the, the whole mechanism here is this H3K4, uh, whatever, H3K something uh, modification. So it's not necessarily intrinsic to the glia. It's something that's acquired in the glioblastoma. So I'm, I'm not confused. I guess I'm curious as to how... The glia, is it just accidental because it's conserved across many different glioblastoma models, presumably? So why does glio, glio do this when glia don't? Uh, I don't know. Maybe glia do or they have a propensity to, but I, I guess that for me is the real uh, question behind uh, the questions that are presented in this paper. Really exciting work and a lot to think about. Once again, I need to, I think we need to have a, a resident expert here on the show <laughs> discussing this because you're asking the wrong guy. But having a glio expert would be, yeah, I think, you know, would be useful. Uh, we've had some recently on the show. But it also makes me wonder about the the universal nature of this mechanism, right? H3K4 trimethylation and particular histamine secretion isn't necessarily that something that's exclusive. Or maybe it is. I don't. I don't know how exclusive it is to glio. You know, I'm sure other tumor microenvironments are hijacking the same pathway to mediate angiogenesis because angiogenesis is universal across no matter whatever solid tumor you're working with. It's got to have a blood supply, right? Yeah, there you are, man. Again, the silver bullet is Benadryl. Let's go, all you oncologists out there, have been wasting your time. Uh, very exciting. I don't mean that. You haven't been wasting your time. You've been using your time well. And this story is evidence of that. Another great story that is kind of in line, I guess, with uh, our guests coming up um, is this one I, I pulled out of Nature Methods uh, just this last week. 
Uh, and it's a story about organoids, of course. You know, we love talking about organoids and the whole thing about organoids, they resemble the anatomical and functional units of the organ from which they are derived, right? But the, the problem is with organoid culture is that in a conventional laboratory setting, you know, what you do is you just embed the cells, uh, stem cells, either pluripotent or adult, um, in a drop of ECM, pretty much like a hydrogel or matrogel. Uh, and the problem there is that this relies on passive diffusion for nutrient supply and waste removal, right? And as these organoids grow and mature, they become more metabolically demanding, but the limits of diffusion are the same, right? Uh, and that leads to a deficiency in those inner regions resulting in necrotic core uh, and reduced cell viability across the organoid because nobody likes to have a necrotic core and that probably isn't good for the neighbors. Um, and that, yeah, eventually propagates through the entire hydrogel uh, construct with all the dead cell and the waste uh, that comes from them. So just to put it into perspective, let's look at intestinal organoids, you know, primo adult stem cell derived organoid. Uh, typically, uh, when you're working with those cell death is evident within 10 days. And the way you get around this is that you you passage these organoids every week or so, so that they don't get too big. Right. But that's fundamentally opposed to the whole idea, I think, that is central to organoid uh, and differentiation is that these structures allow us to get the sustained growth and maturation um, of cells within context. Uh, and, you know, if you're passaging them every week, then that's not really you're, you're losing that. Uh, there is a, a way around that. Right. And a lot of researchers have used bioreactors. Right. Uh, to improve uh, diffusion and transport. Uh, Dr. Hanna, we're about to talk to roller culture, similar idea. Um, but that's not cheap. I mean, he'll tell us. Uh, you got expensive capital equipment. You need specialized knowledge. Um, alternatively, there's been other approaches. Hey, let's just vascularize these organoids. Yeah, easy to say, but prohibitively complex in practice. And I don't think anybody is really there yet. So, as a kind of, you know, practical alternative, ready to go. You don't need a million dollars in specialized knowledge. The lab of Dan dong Hu uh, <clears throat> at UPenn, they came up with this uh, geometric uh, engineering approach, uh, generates something called octopus um, that converts these uh, stem cell suspensions or em embeds them in a radial array. Uh, that can be maintained for extended periods without passing the cells. And you gotta, you gotta look at the picture. I can't describe it. It looks like an. It's called octopus, not for no reason. You know, picture cutting along a ball, half of a, a hemisphere of a ball, you know, to the center, and then getting all those arms out, making seven cuts or eight cuts. That's what it looks like. H have a look for yourself. But uh, the real key here, what they showed is, is the result. They, they showed using intestinal organoids, of course. <clears throat> as their model, they showed that there was accelerated production of the organoids. They had enhanced structural functional maturity. And here's the key. They had they were able to get continuous de development, not for that 10-day limit where you pass it every week. They were able to get continuous de development for over four weeks. Um, and it made it into nature methods, of course, because then they applied it uh, using patient-derived uh, intestinal stem cells to make an or organoid model of inflammatory bowel disease. 
um, which they used then uh, single cell RNA seq to show that this advanced, uh, more advanced model was able to reproduce key pathological features of inflammatory bowel disease that weren't present in the you know junior organoids uh, that were the limit limit of the art before, um, and then. You know, I just said nobody's able to do it. The vascularization they went for. It. They they showed that they could engineer vascularized, not only vascularized, but perfusible um, enteroids from human intestinal stem cells. So, you know, that was kind of, I guess, the cherry on top, being that the whole idea here was to bypass vascularization. But then they show uh, in this context that they're able to um, elicit it and and get really, uh, I think, advanced vascular development. So. Who know? Who knew? A two and one here. Uh, maybe just creating an organoid that is more amenable to uh, limits of diffusion can somehow prop up the that vasculogenic process. Who knows? Uh, certainly more to be done here. But the, the real key here is this is something. It's like right out of the box. You know, a, a new investigator just starting their lab can get right into it with organoids and and get them to develop to pretty advanced stages. So I, I love something like this that quote unquote democratizes. Uh, the the scientific technology and makes it uh, available uh, to all these young trainees that don't have all the money but have the big ideas. So gotta love this story, Arun. Yeah, I love Nature Methods papers like this that are like you're saying, democratizing science and making these approaches accessible to even the the junior folks like me with not that much cash. And I'm doing a little bit of organoid stuff myself. You know, cardiac as opposed to intestinal. But perhaps this is something that can be applicable to the work that I do, because as we discussed, every single organoid type needs some sort of vascularization. It seems like that's to to take it to the next level. I think anything that can improve upon the, you know, the the current heterogeneity of the organoid development process is a, is a good thing. Um, some of these scalable approaches, if they can become more high throughput and combine them with the fact that you're actually vascularizing the, these things, I think is going to go a long way towards improving the field as a whole. Agree. And, you know, a big step forward um, just in terms of what's left to, to do here. I think there we got to get Pascal in, in the mix here because I think having a, a monotypic organoid maybe may not highlight the the real potential of this system i, I can't wait to see uh, someone put some assembloids in there um but yeah i agree with you so exciting and and i'm enticed i'm not an organoid guy but i might want to get into it if i don't have to buy a bioreactor to, to to even get off the ground then maybe this is something i should i should get started with but first, let's talk about roller culture with Dr. Hannah. Before we get to that, though, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with MTeaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies. The most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. MTeaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash mteaserplus. All right, guys, today we have a special guest, special for me, and I'm guessing Arun, because we've been dying to talk to this scientist for, I mean, as long as I've been doing the show. Um, we have with us today, Dr. Jacob Hanna, uh, who's associate professor with tenure, also at the Weizmann Institute, also founder and chief scientific off advisor of Renewal Bio. 
Dr. Hanna's lab investigates the process of cellular reprogramming in which induced pluripotent stem cells are generated from somatic cells and how pluripotency is maintained throughout development in mice and humans. In parallel, his lab develops engineered artificial platforms that enable capturing natural or synthetic mammalian embryogenesis from early stem cell stages until advanced complete organogenesis entirely outside of the uterus um, using these models to understand basic principles of development, as well as developing applied approaches for tissue regeneration and transplantation. Dr. Hanna, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's, uh, I really enjoy your podcast always. Well, we're happy to have you and we really enjoy reporting on your science. Um, as I said, I've been gunning for this interview for as long as I've been doing this show. So really, thanks for joining us. And it's because your body of work over just the last decade is enough to make the careers of like a handful of big name scientists. And, and it's pretty broad in spectrum, I would say. So why don't we let you introduce your lab's interests and focus for the next decade? Yeah, um, for the next decade, that's a tough one. Uh, but I would say, um, I mean, it's uh, next day is going to be a continuation of what we've been doing, but I think it's just going to be kind of a, a perhaps unplanned merger of different avenues of research. I think, um, you know, we've been very much interested in, in really the molecular mechanisms of, of really pluripotency and, you know, talking about naive to prime pluripotency transitions. Um, and, and we moving really from understanding why this is important and uh, what are the regulator and what are the principles dictating this uh, condition. And at the, but basically, you know, focusing initially on mice where this is very, very character, much more characterized and then slowly moving also trying to advance that in humans. Um, and and, and the overreaching question, which we haven't answered yet really is who cares and why is it important? I mean, why do you have two states of pluripotency in different species and um, which is, seems to be conserved? Uh, what is the benefit of this? And what is the molecular consequence of bypassing if you don't do this that way? Hmm. Um, and I would say that has kind of led us to the recent um, you know, work on embryogenesis, which is perhaps is not obvious there, but it's for us, it's a direct continuation because if you want to answer, in the end, the embryo is the outcome of naive to prime pluripotency transitions. And we did not have systems where we can go from naive to primed to a gastrolating embryos. And what is the consequence of perturbing things in the prime pluripotency? And that is why we wanted basically to have ability of systems where have a continuum of growth outside the uterus. And, uh, and and at the same time, so we were trying to do this from stem cells, right? I mean, the, what, I, what I'm describing you, you know, what we call synthetic embryo, which is a more accurate way should be a stem cell derived embryo. But, you know, if you wanna grow a stem cell derived embryo, how are, on earth are you going to do that if you don't know how to grow a natural embryo for these periods of time? Mm. So that's why we, you know, kind of started from the basics of like, okay, can we do a little bit better than what we've been doing with natural embryogenesis? And the answer is yes. And that was a very big bottleneck to really to the recent um, 
progress when we transition that to stem cells. And I think, you know, so these things are interconnected because a lot, we talk a lot of this comes from having to start with naive pluripotency. And what about naive pluripotency and giving extra embryonic tissues? It becomes very relevant. And of course, advancing this, these models of, of embryogenesis outside the uterus. So that is going to keep us very busy for, I would say, even the 20 next years. <laughs> yeah, I would like to agree with that. And it sounds like what you're saying is you're the work that's come out of your lab in the last year has been a natural evolution of the things that you have been doing over the last decade. So that makes a lot of sense. And certainly you've been busy. You've had a busy year uh, publishing a couple of very high profile papers talking about these stem cell derived embryos, like you alluded to. You called them, quote, synthetic embryos as well, synthetic mouse embryos ex vivo using mouse embryonic stem cells. I mean, a big part of this was using this artificial roller culture to facilitate mm -hmm. the growth of these synthetic embryos. And unless somebody's been living under a rock in the stem cell field, they're very likely to have heard about these studies recently, You know, even if they're not in the stem cell field, like my parents were talking about this kind of work, <laughs> which tells you something, right? Um, and we've talked a lot about how developmentally advanced these embryos are ex vivo. They're not perfect and you're um, you're gonna refresh on that as well yeah but but talk about the journey the journey of getting this to actually work and it's been so long in the making years in the making and exceptionally difficult to to implement so just tell us about that journey of getting these synthetic embryos going yeah um i mean uh as, like a lack of a lot of good project you know this kind of started at a side project because we thought it's never gonna work and we had to work on natural embryos at the beginning. And when we approached this, you know, we looked at previous attempts and there's, you know, great science trying to grow embryos and, and, and scientists could grow them for about two days to the most, honestly, from different, and usually it's like never continuous. So it's never from pre-gastrulation, which we always said it's critical because if you wanna go from naive stem cells, meaning you have to start from pre-gastrulation. Um, you could never like capture the entire gastrulation. The efficiencies were very, very low. Uh, still, they were very useful systems. And we thought that let's take some of these old systems and revisit them with uh, newer tools, whether it's about the growth conditions, whether about the incubator system itself. And luckily, I had a little bit of background in electronic engineering from high school, just enough to enter, you know, hire an ex external engineer and work together. Mm. And the journey, um, which, you know, it was very, very tedious for, for the, the student and the staff scientists who did this. And, you know, I would say like, there wasn't almost like a eureka moment. Uh, it was just really digging in the dirt every day. And the process that, you know, we, you know, what we published so far, we go from with natural embryos, we went from day five and a half, which is pre-gastrulation, which is the first time and very critical until day 11. Uh, we can actually do this now more. Hopefully, you know, we'll publish this in a year or so. Um, but, um, and, and, and the process was just, you know, being able to grow one more day, two more days and learning what is really changing. And often what was, you know, very interesting parameter, I always say, you know, we were trying to improve efficiency, the number of days and the quality of the embryos. And typically when you made an improvement, all of these parameters moved forward together. So you never had like something, you improved the, only the efficiency, but not really the quality. And I think that alludes to perhaps what is obvious is really, you know, it's really the embryo self-propelling and we are just giving the right environment, which is probably, I, I call it, you know, metabolic support, 
and get the hell out of its way. Meaning like, don't, <laughs> you know, don't make it stick, make sure it's happy uh, and, it, and it does the job. That's why I like, you know, I think that is a lot of the credit there. And really, uh, you know, a lot of sometimes it's some, some of the parameters, you know, it's sometimes we would think about it scary because it took us a year to like figure out one parameter, you know, just as simple as that, having to put a diaper, just, you know, they, you don't want to leave them overnight just in, in the light, you know, their efficiency drops dramatically. That's, you know, we figured it out and you saw it. Uh, another one is really controlling the gas flow and the pressure. So at a certain pressure, which proved very critical, really. I think that was one of the biggest, um, uh, you know, kind of parameters that really improved the qualities of these embryos. Um, the fact that, you know, having to use, so when you come to the media itself, actually, so there were a lot of papers, like having, like always the right agreements, but somehow they were never put together. So, you know, having, making sure that you need the HEPIS buffering, uh, the, the, the glucose avoiding, uh, very high glucose, avoiding phenol red. So all of these kind of things were just fit together to really, when we, when we started also from day seven uh, to day 11, which that was the initial start, we really could reach eventually after these, you know, a couple of years, you know, three years, we, we got like 90% efficiency. So it was really, really mm. uh, robust in that part. And, and the same with the device. So we had, you know, to prepare every time, add a parameter, the pressure and how to build it and just, you know, a couple of reiterations. Um, to reach the you know the first prototype, and I you know I don't think these are the best conditions. Probably there are other ways even to do it, on, but it is definitely like you know it it puts things on the map. I would say that this is no longer a, a sporadic or very limited um, growth that you can really move from a, from a 5.5 embryo that is just basically a ball of stem cells, and you could capture natural gastrulation in a way, and it really goes all the way to organogenesis. Um, and, and and once kind of we had very only that we you know we started in parallel quickly thinking about okay what would happen if you put stem cells uh, in these conditions and because now at least you know you you have a condition uh, a platform that you know it supports natural embryogenesis for these periods and what what how, what would happen if you put stem cells in them mm -hmm. and there was also the question what stem cells and 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 there was one thing. And in, as we were also thinking about this, um, you know, we were eyeing many different models. You would think the blastoid models uh, from Nicholas Riveron was really the first to make a model that has the three lineages, the trophoblast, the PRE, and the ES cells. You had also models from Zernikagetz that the later ones really came with putting the different um, cells together and so forth, uh, like trophoblast, XEN cells, and, and ES cells. Um, and they could, you know, Reverend was basically when he played at the Blastoid, he could reach about 4.5, 5. Magdalena reached about day six, I would say, in a lot of these things. And uh, we were uh, playing a lot. And actually, not, this is a br the brilliant work that was done. But actually, what we've also realized that these embryos, actually, if you read carefully, can could not grow further um, uh, in, in the system. So. So, so, so just to backpedal a little bit, I would say like we were very keen on actually also starting with naive cells only, which is I think another very important aspect of, of our paper is that really showing that functionally extra embryonic cells that can reconstitute the entire embryo can be only made from ES cells. Um, and that was motivated from the observation in our work uh, in humans, which also was published by other groups like Austin Smith, and that they saw that actually in human cells, it's very easy to make trophoblast stem cells and uh, naive endoderm cells. You don't even need to overexpress the transcription factor. So when we saw that, actually, we realized mm, that we should be pushing harder in the mouse, even though we, we overexpress transcription factor there.
And the other aspect is, which was you know an important part of to realize is, you know, always when I talk about an embryo, we're trying to grow it. So when you see an image of an embryo, uh, I make the analogy of a, taking a snapshot of a rocket in the air. And if you look at the snapshot of that rocket, you do not know if this is really accelerating and continuing to go up, or this is just about to you know curve and, and hit the ground back. And many times, though, for example, a lot, so very important technical parameters. You know, for example, a lot of the these um, previous ETX models were made in knockout serum replacement. It was a heavy important parameter that was used there. But we already noted in natural embryogenesis, anything KSR somehow is really, really not good for embryogenesis. And actually all the previous protocols that contain KSR in the media, that the embryos you reach day six, it looks quite nice, but actually they cannot grow further. So, which is, I think one of the, the point, one of the conclusion was this, although the, I think the efficiencies, particularly for natural embryogenesis, are, can be quite high, but you know, it's, a, it's a very self-driven, robust process, but it has to be done in the right condition. Uh, that is like one of the things that is, you know, kind of a, you can call it a paradox. And it's not, it's, if you do the right conditions, which are very defined, it, it, it's very strong, it's very robust. But, you know, if you don't have the glucose, if somehow you had KSR in there, if you do not have the right flow, your efficiency drops to the ground. So that is a bit uh, one of the kind of a very technical, but but very important because in the end, what we are doing is very, very technical at the moment. You have to have a technical platform so that you know we can use it for research afterwards. So I would say that was a bit kind of uh, our journey. And I think you know our working hypothesis that you needed to learn how to make grow natural embryos first before you go to stem cell drive and paid off because to me, <laughs> You always tell my students if you, that we're now teaching them to make IPS cells. I tell them, yeah, but you better go first, learn how to grow yes cells. You know, it's, you can't like, you know, so you have to, <laughs> the yes cells, in this case, the natural embryo is the reference. Uh, I mean, maybe there are some differences after all, but I think that was uh, kind of our working hypothesis and mode of operation. And I think it, I'm happy it, it proved out to be right for us. Yes. I mean, right is understating it. Um... And hearing you talk about it, thank you for sharing it because the we'd love to talk about the Eureka moments, but really 99.9% .9 of science is the grind, right? Grinding, grinding, yeah. grinding, and and not giving up because if it fails a million times, you say it's just not gonna work, but you just kept pushing and and found those parameters and and the rest is history. Um, but I want to dig in uh, to a, another lane that you were in um uh related, but it's all related. It all builds yeah. to this, but um, you had this seminal work uh, deriving, defining the culture conditions for ground state pluripotency, and that, that was a cr critical prerequisite to, as you said, to generating these stem cell derived embryos. But it also opened the door to another important milestone, which is the generation of primordial germ cells from induced pluripotent stem cells. And many other researchers, in addition to yourself, led mostly by Azim Sarani, who you've worked closely with, Mitanori Saitu, Katsuhiku Hayashi, and others have built on this to generate gametes from yeah. and live-born pups for mouse iPSCs. Uh, you know, as a, as a lab director in a fertility clinic, this is of particular interest to me. So, so shifting gears from the stem cell-derived embryos, I ask you, do you think that we're going to make sperm and eggs from human iPSCs for IVF in my lifetime? If so, what's it going to take to make it safe and practical? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad you touched on this because um, I always, when I give my talk as a, you know, as a, I think the most uh, striking example why 
naive to prime pluripotency matter is actually if you look at the original protocol of from Saito when he made really the first authentic PGCs, because there, if you look why he succeeded, he had to start with naive cells. And the question is why? He had to give them priming for two days. And why? And if you give priming for more than two days, actually you lose that competence. And that, there's another question, why? And that's a very kind of important paradigm. I always say that here, the, the, the state of the starting material really changes. In this case, really the the whether you get the cells or not, you can imagine other scenarios. It can influence the consistency, the quality, the maturity of the cells. We don't know yet. And I think that is why we are very much after, you know, understanding why going through this transition is important. Um, and I think, uh, uh, and yes, we were very excited when we, you know, defined the, the first version of naive cells, which at the beginning we defined them as something that is able to grow in the presence of ERK inhibitor. Um, and yes, you know, one of the first thing we did with Azim Surani asked like, okay, we know primed cells could not do it with conventional protocols. Would those cells make PGCs? And yes, actually, <laughs> I was left. That was one of the, probably the only time in my life an experiment worked from the first time. You know, it just worked, period. It's very simple. Um, and then, and after that, of course, there was the question, what is a naive cell? How much naive do we want it? What is the downside? How would you find it? And, you know, we've, you know, we've published and others have published over the years, really, and I think, it's come nice, a nice body of work from different groups understanding really like, for example, there's now consensus of like, you know, in humans, actually you need Wnt inhibition. Uh, that is you know, the reason you can get more naive cells. Actually, activine also is consensus that supports naive pluripotency in humans, which is different from the mouse. So it's nice to see, you know, that the overall, uh, the, the 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 pathways everybody's like now agrees really what 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 to get there. And, and still there are challenges like loss of imprinting and so forth. Um, um, but going back to question, uh, uh, I am optimistic. Yes, I do think that making human gametes uh, is going to be possible. Um, you know, probably there are going to be different ways of doing it. And the question is, like, what is the source of the cells? Obviously, the challenge we can make PGCs quite well. Um, you know, you, how do you take embryonic supporting cells, which are very critical? Um, do you take them from abortions in human in the cases of a human? Do you do it with animal products? Are they going to be safe? Or can you, for example, use Stem cell derived, and we call them now instead of S embryo stems, stem cell derived embryo model. I think that is more consistent with ICCR, so we call them SEMS. <laughs> so, can we take SEMS and actually to, as a sort of thesis? We don't know yet, and more probably different options, but it's clearly, I think it's a very, you know, and again, you know, great credit to the work of, of Saito and Hayashi that really pushed this consistently from the mouse to monkeys, it was in humans. Um, and, and I think, uh, uh, of course, that is really progressing really nicely. And I think uh, um, there are going to be probably different ways actually of doing of doing this, but I think it's possible. I mean, it could be very inefficient. It could be that the high quality gametes um, are harder to come by. It could be that spermatogenesis is actually harder than oocytes actually might prove. We don't know yet, but um, it's, it's a very promising line of research. Yeah, I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If I had to go through my training again, and I was a trainee right now, this is the field that I would be involved in now, early embryo development, just because the pace of the research in the past five years, decade has been tremendous. And just some of these model systems that are emerging in this field are just going to help us answer so many of these questions in fundamental developmental biology. And so, you know, going back to these, you know, stem cell derived embryo models or SEMS, as you've <laughs> alluded to, um, you know, they're developmentally advanced. We've touched on that, but again, not perfect. Um, no, far from perfect. I would say they're, they're abnormal. They're, they're abnormal. Absolutely. 
Totally. But, you know, one question that's been on everyone's mind, regardless of how imperfect they might be, is what about human? What about human yeah. embryos? Right. And certainly this is something that you're undoubtedly thinking of. And given the, the startup that you've actually founded and we'll get to the renewal bio in a little bit. Yeah. So what do you think about heading down that road? I mean, is this something that you've already started working on? I'm sure it is. And yeah. tell us about the technical challenges of human versus mouse in this way. Yeah. So as I, I think I'll talk about, you know, touch, I, obviously this is a very, very important line of research. Uh, uh, and I, I include it. I, and even we work on rabbits, we work on monkeys, and we work in human embryos. And I think, you know, we there's so much we do not know. It's truly a black box, you know, when you talk about human embryogenesis from week two to week five, I think even more than that. But those, you just have no way really of getting this material uh, and looking, we really do not know, even even really from a dynamic anatomy, how human gastrulation looks like. Um, even the monkey, I would say, we're, we're in tough. And again, I want to, you know, we have atlases, great knowledge, but, you know, we're tracking, we want to see the whole thing. And we then also, we want to perturb it and we really study it. And I think that is really a very feasible way of, of progressing forward. And again, you know, whether um, again touches on a, work of blastoids and, and going further, you know, whether is it like, or gastroloids or, or are these, you know, differences? I, I call it all this in the same neighborhood, I would say. Um, and I think one thing, so we've, yes, we, are, we have made, we have made progress on this already. Um, uh, and we have very exciting results and still zillion miles of work that need to be done. But I think definitely what we already see that, as I mentioned, is that a critical milestone is starting with naive cells. Um, actually, it doesn't even have to be the you know, the most naive cells. We can even look, we use like our first version, which are just very little naive, or you know, you can call them perhaps even formative. But clearly, starting with prime cells is, is, is not the way to go. Um, and that is, you know, that so that was a I would say it's a milestone that has been resolved, luckily for us. I mean, we started for a different reason, but now it's paying off here. And then I would say that the 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 difficulty, of course, with humans, uh, when you talk about, you know, what is your reference? Um, because you know, when we, we talk about the mouse, the efficiency is, is, is still low, five percent, although we've increased it and uh, but you know what? What is your reference? Because these things are very, still very variable at the moment. It might always stay variable. We don't know that. Um, and also, you know, even when we look at, you know, when you stain for markers, and um, you know, actually, there are a lot of differences. Really, actually, what is really is the how big is the hypoblast? How which is, you know, GATA6, which in the human, in the mouse is very specific to the hypoblast. It's like everywhere in the, in the human embryo. We know that even from natural embryos, so it's not that specific. Um, you know, you start having extra embryonic mesoderm in these models, which is, you know, more in humans, not in the mouse. Um, so there's a lot of like challenges of like, what are you looking at? Of course, you try to do look at atlases, you try to look at really more and more data coming out from the monkey. Um, but that is, you know, that is a challenge. But as I mentioned, I think, and I, I really, we don't, we don't call this, you know, an embryo model. I was, you know, we're uh, just to kind of make it sound uh, more palatable. So it's really what we believe it's an embryo model. And in the end, we might, even if it's not, it's, you know, I don't know if I want to put a number on it, you know, if it's like 70% of what we, you know, a nat normal embryo, natural embryo, or 80% or, or something like that, but it is a model. And we're trying to push the envelope to see what is that good for. Um, 
you know, as you mentioned, we're going back, jumping back to the mouse. Yes, so you have sometimes often the, the heart is bigger than the other one, but but you have a model in the end, you know, the heart in the right place, the brain is the right place. It's, it's uh, there's differences in the proportions and sometimes it's missing one part, but it's clearly the most, it's, it's clearly an authentic axis formation at the multiple axes and it's clearly more sophisticated by far than anything that we've seen, you know, that's been achieved, you know, and look, it's really, that's why also like I'm careful. I, I do like also, you know, we call it a model, but you know, when we're, we're talking to touch on the ethics, but you know, it's I think you know it's definitely it's more has more complexity than we see in gastroloids or in any other models. Um, so that's but uh, I think that is the fun the fun kind of you know of, of research. You know, your uh, things you have to do this patiently, and even even when we look, I mentioned you know passing you know look like mouse embryos, we can grow them now you know, from day zero to day. Uh, 13 actually outside the user and, it, and I will say you know it takes us time it takes us like two years really to publish even now that we have the protocol working quite a bit it's just a lot of numbers really analysis and and doing it it's, you have to be I know that's at least I, I, that's how it's been for my team it takes uh, takes a lot of time to to really make these statements get and get get it outright let's say yes time rigor grinding as we talked about before. <laughs> But um, I mean, I'm. I just want to disclaim here that uh, I'm asking this question not of myself or from myself, but more to represent uh, the broad group of scientists here, um, because we're talking about models, and I appreciate that this is a model, and it, we're not talking about making mice from these stem cell derived embryos. That's not the purpose. It, it's really to have a tractable model that's uh, approachable and experimentally perturbable, perturbable, as you said. Mm -hmm. Um. But there's some scientists who have voiced this opinion that the, the idea of going from the ground up, so to speak, introduces these unnecessary regulatory or bioethical dilemmas. So speak strictly speaking for the purpose of regenerative yeah. medicine, putting models aside, because, you know, you say a lot of people when they see these SAMs, they're thinking, oh, this is going to be an organ factory. Um, mm -hmm. So the alternative that some people put forth is that instead of starting from the ground state there with the embryonic uh, or the stem cell stem cells that make up these stem cell derived embryos um that you could start with the the cells that make up a specific tissue or organ enlage right and then cultivate yeah. those precursor organoids which a lot of people are going after of course into viable yeah. transplantal tissues so just strictly speaking in terms of like for regenerative purposes, yeah. do you uh, do you think that one approach or the other is is going to be more practical or palatable? Yeah. What's your take there? So, I, I I as I mentioned, I a little bit alluded why we started working on this and the PGC paradigm. So one one thing that I'm, I I totally disagree with, which is this common notion of oh, why do you have to make a whole embryo model where we actually can, you know, we can, we know how to differentiate so many cell types so well alone, it's enough. And I really want to rebuke that. Um, you know, we have, we cannot continue to stick our head in the sands. It's it's really surprising that we can make iPS cells in naive conditions that has been solved so far. Surprisingly, differentiation has proven extremely difficult. Hmm. I think we can make mature cells or authentic cells of very, very few cell types. I mean, look at this. We are 30 years in. We cannot make even mouse HECs or human HECs. Yeah. And just an example, and many of them. And, I, and that's why I touched about the PGC paradigm, because... The PGC paradigm, there's something when scary about it to me because there, when I told you, you know, if you, for example, do too much uh, priming, prolonged priming, 
you really have a block in PGC. It's not that you get 40% down to 30%. You can have like down to zero. And so you can imagine the PGC is a short journey of differentiation. And let's envision HSC differentiation. You might have 10 or 20 of these windows of competence that need to be open up at the right time at the right magnitude. And we might not be able in the end by us, because what's happening in you know conventional in, in differentiation, we are giving the morphogens. We are the, you know when how to much when to give when how much when and so forth. And we might not be able to recapitulate that complexity. What is happening in the SEM models, with a disclaimer that yes, we use serum in in our media, but still we do not give you know these bursts of winds, bursts of BMPs, and the the axis formation. The pattern in the morphogenesis is dictated by the self-organizing embryos or by the self-organizing stem cells that give rise to the SEM. And that could be a major difference because the, you know, when we look at, you know, when we do these single cell RNA-seq analysis and, and comparisons, and we all in our case, you know, we take the highest standard, which is natural embryos, you know, we're getting very high scores of similarity. So very, very and complexity, and I think that is very encouraging. Therefore, and, and we have to also remember that we know that differentiation is often of a certain organ is influenced by its neighboring organs. The placenta and the yolk sac can also, you know, PGC induction is from the EXE, actually, so not only about metabolism. So that you might have a lot of authentic factors that might lead to making cell types more authentically in these conditions. That's why I would say the you know, I think it's a very legitimate way. Uh, it might prove, and I'm not dismissing, of course, conventional differentiation at all. There's great cells, great clinical trials. And, but we definitely, I think we need a fresh angle on this and see, does this solve some of the problems? Does, can we get more cell types or can we get more authentic cell types? Perhaps, and then we can combine the two. You know, you can, you know, grow the SCM to a certain level, then extract the cells, and then continue with a, you know, a differentiation protocol that exists. So we don't know yet. But I, I but I, I worry about, you know, this kind of locking ourselves just saying, oh, we don't need this because we know, uh, and conveying this to the general public, we know how to make all these cell types. Why do we need this? I think it's completely misleading. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think your HSC, you know, hematopoietic stem cell analogy is a, is a very good one, because it seems like we talk about this every single episode on this show is that, you know, HSC differentiation from IPSC or ESC still hasn't been established for, for decades. And, you know, there's incremental advances happening, but I think having some of these early developmental models will be extremely critical in helping us resolve some of those issues. So I totally agree I with you there. Um, and, I, and, and I remind us, you know, when we take the same IPS cells, of course, in mice, when you inject it and make a chimera, you have beautiful bone marrow. So the problem is not the cells. We are the problem. <laughs> we, are not, <laughs> we are not unleashing that potential from them. So that, I think that is a very important fact as well. That's fair enough. That's very true. Um, I, I wanted to take a minute to talk about your new startup, actually. I mean, this is very relevant to the conversation that we've been having, Renewal Bio, which, you know, and I'm going to take this straight from the company website, quote, aims to make humanity younger and healthier by leveraging the power of stem cell technology, which is, of course, you know, referring to the stem cell derived embryo models that you've recently uh, developed. I mean, the goal is eventually to produce these artificial models of human embryos that are equivalent to perhaps 40 to 50 day old pregnancy. I mean, this is mm -hmm. a very long down the mm -hmm. road um, and then maybe harvest early 
you know, analogs of organs to get cells mm -hmm. that might be, be able to use for transplantation. That's again, an extremely lofty goal, yeah. but one with a lot of potential for increasing, for example, the number of organs available for transplantation, alleviating the black market of organs that's currently mm -hmm. out there. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about more about Renewal yeah. Bio. I mean, I know it's just getting off the ground right now yeah. and how realistic some of these goals might be for yeah. like the next decade. Yeah, I think, you know, what the words you quoted are uh, a fancy words to say, we want to, this is a new source of difference. You know, I think it's a kind of a universal differentiation protocol. Mm. And we think we want to look at these cell types. Can we transplant them? Um, and the reason, you know, I was actually very, for years, even when we made the first PGCs or something, a lot of investors wanted us to start a company and trying, and I felt like it's too early. Um, but I now felt not, not necessarily that we're, you know, in, in terms of being ready, but this is the time, I think that this is, I think this is so major that you actually need the power of uh, a company to really, it, it's beyond the scope of a one lab, uh, you know, because this is going to involve newer incubators, different media, serum-free media, uh, really characterizing and possibly, you know, specifying in certain cell types, which perhaps my lab is not necessarily specifying in. And I think that was a, a motivation, uh, one motivation for us. And I think, you know, the, as I mentioned exactly, the as you touch on it, the, the the scenario that we're dealing in, and this is what starts about the ethics, and you know, perhaps we are dreaming, but why not? It's all about dreaming, uh, what we do. Um, in the end, if you talk about, we know in mice that fetal liver HSCs are actually some of the most transplantable and potent HSCs that you can get at day 11, and you can really, an adult mouse can just live off of it very in a very good way they're actually even more potent than later adult onset hscs and the question you know do your cases if we imagine does a human being who's a patient who needs a transplantation does he have the right to give his consent to make ips cells naive cells grow them as scms as embryo models for let's say fetal liver in humans 50 days if we're talking about gonad 70 days in, 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 in these cases, and take the cells and use them for transplantation directly or expansion. That is the vision. And I think um, it's, it's a very important one. I think that is, you know, I, I really want to talk about the ethics in because I, because people always like, like to drift to the matrix and the island, <laughs> and, a lot of, and I love science fiction, and I'm also fine when you talk about ethics, you want to talk about extreme <laughs> scenarios, but I like, you know, to, to, to you know, you can, we, I don't think we can make an entire human beings, we're not trying, it should be banned, it's illegal, you know, the, 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 it's, it's very clear on that. And I understand you know, now, and I would argue that at the moment, yes, SEMs are, they are not viable on themselves, um, you know, that they, they cannot be put back into a uterus. But many times when you talk ethics, you know, you want to talk about worst case scenarios, okay, or, or you want to assume the extreme, okay. Um, and, and, you know, it's fair to say, yes, probably the differences might narrow with time and improvements between uh, natural embryos and, uh, and stem cell derived embryo models. Um, and that's for, I think, that's why I think a lot of this, a lot of the discussions is, um, you know, it goes back to asking a lot of the discussions that have been at ICCR as well, uh, growing natural embryos. And, and I think here it's a difference because you have the consent and of the adult and as well as the medical need. So it's all about, in the end, cost benefit. The cost in these cases is going to be an ethical cost. 
that's what we, the benefit is really saving lives and solving medical. And where do we draw the balance? And how do we minimize the ethical cost? I think that that is very important. And, 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 and that's something, you know, we, I call it, we call, you know, um, measuring the pulse. We're constantly measuring the pulse on, on how we process. I don't think, you know, we're, they're like red flags kind of like to go up and scary and, and, and these kind of things. And the other point I wanted to add going back that, yes, we are, you know, this is also something we're focusing on actively research in the lab and it's even in our patents and, and so forth is what we call developmentally restricted stem cells, um, you know, and, and you can think of if you, you know, if you're trying to make HCs um, uh, and PGCs, you probably are completely fine without having anonymous tissue. Or actually, we ask everyone about having a heart tissue. And I would say, you know, almost I would say no one can argue that something that doesn't have a heart or and or a brain is not a viable human being, is not a human being. It really gets into a, an organized tissues. Um, that is one way, you know, of, of, of doing things as we go, I think, to the later stages, like day 50 or day 60 and so forth. Mm. So if, if you know, it's called if push comes to shove in terms of things. But I, but I so it's important, you know, and I like it. It's actually the first time I'm actually doing like actual experiments to 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 address uh, ethical, you know, like bypassing ethical issues with by experimentation, by by. Uh, but it's fine, you know. That's that. I think that's. And I think it's an important example because it, in the end, you know, I don't think we should shut the door on something because of concern. Concerns are legitimate, and 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 so forth should be discussed. But I often, you know, when I talk to, to with the public, I always, you know, talk about nuclear physics. You know, you don't ban nuclear physics, which has great benefits for energy and space and so forth, just because some crazy guy can make a nuclear bomb, which actually is much more dangerous than anything of what we're doing in the stem cell field. Mm. Uh, you know, you regulate it, you see what are the challenges, you face the challenges. And I think that's why I think the community and the stem cell community and also the ICCR, you know, has been very good and proactive. And I think it's good to you know, start the discussions now. Because many times, right, we don't, you know, why you, just, you can't discuss a, a point if you actually, something is really not on the table. Why? But actually when you get closer, that's when you start discussing it because it, it could become reality. And how do we um, preemptively think, have the time to think about it? And, uh, and, and one last point, you know, we have to perhaps also face it. Uh, different cultures, different religions have different takes. On these on these aspects, you know, for example, whether it's Judaism or the Islam, who actually do not consider life until very very late stages, which is very different from the um, Catholic Church, different cultures. It's actually funny. I'm I'm like as soon as I finish now, I'm running to give like a public talk invited by the Greek Orthodox chairs here, which I really love it because I really like that's exactly the thing we want them to initiate. We want to learn more and, and discuss these things. And as I mentioned, we and also in the end, it's not for me as to decide. I think in the end, it, we need to engage the scientists, ethicists, different places, who will make up these calls as the science proceeds. As you know, we know what is really on the table, or is something really, really far fetched. Yeah, I mean that's it's funny because all the controversy is in in imagined, right? I mean the, the idea that you're just going out there making humans without thinking about it or consulting with the, the wider community is ridiculous. But um, yeah, I just love that you mentioned the island there. I love that movie, and I say <laughs> the island to people are like, "What are you talking about, ScarJo? You and McGregor? I mean that was a that was a gem." Um, moving on from all of this into more of a, a cultural take because i think now we've kind of segued into into <clears throat> societal 
uh, questions here. You wrote this great piece or as, as one of six LGBTQIA scientists who shared their experience in science over their career so far. First of all, first of all, kudos to you on, on putting that out there. I, I personally know and have spoken Thank to you. scientists who have shared what an inspiration it is to have you specifically, uh, such a prominent role model from the wow. LGBTQIA community <laughs> represent them. No, seriously, I mean, it, it's hard when you don't see people like yourself in science and I think it's great. So congrats and thank you for that. But the piece was really, for me, doubly interesting because it revealed that that your marginalization as a Palestinian uh, was perhaps more deeply felt than, than you know, your marginalization as LGBTQIA identifying. Um, and that's actually more complicated than we realize the relationship between the scientific and also just every community and how we we recognize and 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 prop up uh, scientists from not just different you know you know identification but different groups broadly. Um, I, I don't know that we have the answer for how to fix it, but maybe you could share your thoughts on on what is lost when we fail to make space for, for all types in the sciences. And like personally for you, do you think your research focus and accomplishments would have taken the same course if you were a heterosexual cis identifying male? <laughs> That's a, a very good, uh, very good question. Uh, first, I should actually thank Cell Press really for giving this, uh, consistently giving this uh, uh, platform to discuss such important matters. Um, and I think, um, Probably life, you know, life and science would have been easier for me if, uh, you know, I'm sure I've lost a couple of grants uh, for my political views who may not be very popular locally, you know, <laughs> influenced by human beings, but, you know, I am what I am and I never, you know, think about it twice. But I think what was really important for me when I was thinking about it is, is really we talk about, you know, pinkwashing uh, in general, which is, you know, this term is about that giving a false facade of liberalism, of supporting LGBTQ, right? But actually beyond words, not doing anything about it, or even worse, actually use it to hide more kind of bad policy or other things that are not LGBTQ related that happen. And as I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's definitely, you know, the stem cell science and societies have really, have really have been great in the last, particularly in the last 10 years, great supporting environments for LGBTQ scientists, and it should continue. Um, but I think, you know, you know, following on the, you know, footsteps of women in STEM, basically, and I think, you know, what is now is about really, we should now start asking the institutions of, okay, great, you have support, LGBTQ, but uh, really, is there are proper representations in committees, among faculty, um, uh, in societies, and so forth. And, uh, um, and that is one thing. And the other thing is also make sure that, you know, we, we, we you know, the, we, I think the LGBTQ society was greatly helped by the women in STEM movement and continues to be helped. And we should be looking then, you know, over our shoulders, who's was also facing difficulties. It's mm -hmm. about uh, African Americans in science. It's about immigrants in science. About Latin Americans in science. Um, um, and 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 I really, you think of really diversity more and more deeply. And again, it's about I think in the end also real action uh, and and uh, and 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 doing some starting translating this into uh, policies and and actual plans to integrate any minority or diverse group. Yeah, I think action is 
the end point. And I think it's so important to the field to have someone like yourself as such a prominent stem cell researcher saying these things because you're not a you don't shy away from these controversies. I've seen your social media feeds. Unfortunately not. <laughs> no, I think it's great. You talk about whatever comes to your mind. And I think we need more people like you in this field. So thank you so much for for putting yourself out there in that way. And to say this has been an honor is an understatement. I mean, this yeah. has been just a privilege to have you on the show. And we've been, like Dale said, we've been wanting to have you on the show for so long. And to, I, I just can't wait for this episode to come out and our listeners can listen to what you have had to say, not just scientifically, but everything else we've talked about here. So thank you so much, Dr. Hannah, for, for joining us here today. And actually, before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of these science peripheral questions that we always like to ask our guests. So First off, if you're not a scientist, and we're very glad that you are a scientist, if you're not a scientist, what would you be? Um, first, you thank you very much for the positive feedback. I appreciate your support. And um, actually, um, um, I'm, uh, I've, I've, over the last five years, I've been somehow because of renovation, I've been really exposed to the world of interior design. Hmm. Not necessarily that I'm really good at it, but you know, I could <laughs> see myself really digging into the deep of how things are made and doing them. Um, and yeah, that is something I may have been uh, considered at one, one point in <laughs> an that's alternative <laughs> life. <laughs> I don't think we've heard interior design before. So that's that's a new one. There you go. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> and then finally, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not? Um, but that was easy because it's really something that I continue to tell students. Um, <laughs> um, really like, be careful not to rush yourself and, and particularly when you're like when I was at the age of like 25 27 and you're very much starting to make these calculations of like well I'm going to be a postdoc at 29 and I'm going to be like is it 33 I'm going to get my first position is it 35 and like if I want to be sarcastic about it yeah once you're 40 it doesn't matter if you're going to work until 67 whether you're <laughs> 65 so all these years are really don't matter but really like you know okay yeah I have to be motivated and 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 think time so sometimes you just take a deep breath and ask you like actually does an extra year really matter do is it worth really so much this pressure of finishing a postdoc or PhD or or um you know so just kind of take time um uh, in, per, in a certain perspective, you know, when you're like carefully think about it, just, you know, think really, does it really um, as as intense and bad and dramatic as you might consider it, particularly when you are a young student? I mean, that is great advice, although it's hard. I, I guess everybody feels that pressure, but it, it, coming from you, I think that's a really a great endorsement for taking your time because you've taken your time and, and you haven't moved slow. I mean, you have moved really fast in the past decade and transformed the field. So uh, maybe I'm going to slow down a little bit and, and slow as fast as they say, uh, but I am over 40. So maybe too late for me. Either way, Dr. Hannah, this has really been a joy. I want to echo everything Arun said. Um, you're an inspiration to not just the two of us, but all scientists and just regular people too. I mean, Arun's parents are probably going to put your picture up on their wall. So uh, <laughs> thanks for taking this this little bit of time to share with all of our, our listeners. And I mean, I, I just got to be honest, I'm I'm on pins and needles waiting for uh, these next stories you have. I mean, I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, you know, two cell stage embryo at uh, late organogenesis. Can't wait to see that. And I know it's forthcoming and all you're going to do with Renewal Bio and beyond. Um, it's really exciting just to have you in our field and uh, to have you on the show most of all. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's exciting for, for us as well. Thank you very much. 
All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Tough to do better than we did today with, you know, a god of science, maybe literally. He's creating these synthetic embryos like a god among men. Um, but we have another amazing guest in a couple of weeks. Be sure to tune into that. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.